Chapter Five of the Sad Fortunes of the Reverend Amos Barton from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Five. The Reverend Amos Barton, whose sad fortunes I have undertaken to relate, was, you perceive, in no respect an ideal or exceptional character and perhaps i am doing a bold thing to bespeak your sympathy on behalf of a man who was so very far from remarkable a man whose virtues were not heroic and who had no undetected crime within his breast who had not the slightest mystery hanging about him but was palpably and unmistakably commonplace who was not even in love but had had that complaint favourably many years ago an utterly uninteresting character i think i hear a lady reader exclaim mrs farthingale for example who prefers the ideal in fiction to whom tragedy means ermine tippets adultery and murder and comedy the adventures of some personage who is quite a character but my dear madam it is so very large a majority of your fellow-countrymen that are of this insignificant stamp at least eighty out of a hundred of your adult male fellow-britons returned in the last census are neither extraordinarily silly nor extraordinarily wicked nor extraordinarily wise their eyes are neither deep and liquid with sentiment nor sparkling with suppressed witticisms they have probably had no hair-breadth escapes or thrilling adventures their brains are certainly not pregnant with genius and their passions have not manifested themselves at all after the fashion of a volcano they are simply men of complexions more or less muddy whose conversation is more or less bald and disjointed yet these commonplace people many of them bear a conscience and have felt the sublime prompting to do the painful right they have their unspoken sorrows and their sacred joys their hearts have perhaps gone out towards their first-born and they have mourned over the irreclaimable dead nay is there not a pathos in their very insignificance in our comparison of their dim and narrow existence with the glorious possibilities of that human nature which they share depend upon it you would gain unspeakably if you would learn with me to see some of the poetry and the pathos the tragedy and the comedy lying in the experience of a human soul that looks out through dull grey eyes and that speaks in a voice of quite ordinary tones in that case i should have no fear of your not caring to know what farther befell the reverend amos barton or of your thinking the homely details i have to tell at all beneath your attention as it is you can if you please decline to pursue my story farther and you will easily find reading more to your taste since i learn from the newspapers that many remarkable novels full of striking situations thrilling incidents and eloquent writing have appeared only within the last season meanwhile readers who have begun to feel an interest in the reverend amos barton and his wife will be glad to learn that mr oldenport lent the twenty pounds but twenty pounds are soon exhausted when twelve are due as back payment to the butcher and when the possession of eight extra sovereigns in february weather 
is an irresistible temptation to order a new greatcoat. And though Mr. Bridmain so far departed from the necessary economy entailed on him by the Countess's elegant toilette and expensive maid, as to choose a handsome black silk, stiff, as his experienced eye discerned, with the genuine strength of its own texture, and not with the factitious strength of gum, and present it to Mrs. Barton, in retrieval of the accident that had occurred at his table. Yet, dear me, as every husband has heard, what is the present of a gown when you are deficiently furnished with the etceteras of apparel, and when, moreover, there are six children whose wear and tear of clothes is something incredible to the non-maternal mind. Indeed, the equation of income and expenditure was offering new and constantly accumulating difficulties to Mr. and Mrs. Barton, for shortly after the birth of little Walter, Milly's aunt, who had lived with her ever since her marriage, had withdrawn herself, her furniture, and her yearly income to the household of another niece, prompted to that step very probably by a slight tiff with the Reverend Amos, which occurred while Milly was upstairs, and proved one too many for the elderly lady's patience and magnanimity. Mr. Barton's temper was a little warm, but, on the other hand, elderly maiden ladies are known to be susceptible, so we will not suppose that all the blame lay on his side, the less so as he had every motive for humouring an inmate whose presence kept the wolf from the door. It was now nearly a year since Miss Jackson's departure, and, to a fine ear, the howl of the wolf was audibly approaching. It was a sad thing, too, that when the last snow had melted, when the purple and yellow crocuses were coming up in the garden, and the old church was already half pulled down, Milly had an illness which made her lips look pale, and rendered it absolutely necessary that she should not exert herself for some time. Mr. Brand, the Shepperton doctor so obnoxious to Mr. Pilgrim, ordered her to drink port wine, and it was quite necessary to have a charwoman very often to assist Nanny in all the extra work that fell upon her. Mrs. Hackett, who hardly ever paid a visit to anyone but her oldest and nearest neighbour, Mrs. Patton, now took the unusual step of calling at the vicarage one morning, and the tears came into her unsentimental eyes as she saw Milly seated pale and feeble in the parlour unable to persevere in sewing the pinafore that lay on the table beside her. Little Dicky, a boisterous boy of five with large pink cheeks and sturdy legs, was having his turn to sit with Mamma, and was squatting quiet as a mouse at her knee, holding her soft white hand between his little red black-nailed fists. He was a boy whom Mrs. Hackett in a severe mood had pronounced stocky, a word that etymologically in all probability conveys some allusion to an instrument of punishment for the refractory, but seeing him thus subdued into goodness she smiled at him with her kindest smile, and stooping down suggested a kiss, a favour which Dicky resolutely declined. "'Now do you take nourishing things enough?' was one of Mrs. Hackett's first questions and Milly endeavoured to make it appear that no woman was ever so much in danger of being overfed and led into self-indulgent habits as herself. 
but mrs hackett gathered one fact from her replies namely that mr brand had ordered port wine while this conversation was going forward dicky had been furtively stroking and kissing the soft white hand so that at last when a pause came his mother said smilingly why are you kissing my hand dicky it ud tell yovely answered dicky who you observe was decidedly backward in his pronunciation mrs hackett remembered this little scene in after days and thought with peculiar tenderness and pity of the stocky boy the next day there came a hamper with mrs hackett's respects and on being opened it was found to contain half a dozen of port wine and two couples of fowls mrs farquhar too was very kind insisted on mrs barton's rejecting all arrowroot but hers which was genuine indian and carried away sophie and fred to stay with her a fortnight these and other good-natured attentions made the trouble of milly's illness more bearable but they could not prevent it from swelling expenses and mr barton began to have serious thoughts of representing his case to a certain charity for the relief of needy curates altogether as matters stood in shepperton the parishioners were more likely to have a strong sense that the clergyman needed their material aid than that they needed his spiritual aid not the best state of things in this age and country where faith in men solely on the ground of their spiritual gifts has considerably diminished and especially unfavorable to the influence of the reverend amos whose spiritual gifts would not have had a very commanding power even in an age of faith but you ask did not the countess czerlaski pay any attention to her friends all this time to be sure she did she was indefatigable in visiting her sweet milly and sitting with her for hours together it may seem remarkable to you that she neither thought of taking away any of the children nor of providing for any of milly's probable wants but ladies of rank and of luxurious habits you know cannot be expected to surmise the details of poverty she put a great deal of eau de cologne on mrs barton's pocket-handkerchief rearranged her pillow and footstool kissed her cheeks wrapped her in a soft warm shawl from her own shoulders and amused her with stories of the life she had seen abroad when mr barton joined them she talked of tractarianism of her determination not to re-enter the vortex of fashionable life and of her anxiety to see him in a sphere large enough for his talents milly thought her sprightliness and affectionate warmth quite charming and was very fond of her while the reverend amos had a vague consciousness that he had risen into aristocratic life and only associated with his middle-class parishioners in a pastoral and parenthetic manner however as the days brightened milly's cheeks and lips brightened too and in a few weeks she was almost as active as ever though watchful eyes might have seen that activity was not easy to her mrs hackett's eyes were of that kind and one day when mr and mrs barton had been dining with her for the first time since milly's illness she observed to her husband that poor thing's dreadful weak and delicate she won't stand havin many more children mr barton meanwhile had been indefatigable in his vocation 
he had preached two extemporary sermons every sunday at the workhouse where a room had been fitted up for a divine service pending the alterations in the church and had walked the same evening to a cottage at one or other extremity of his parish to deliver another sermon still more extemporary in an atmosphere impregnated with spring flowers and perspiration after all these labors you will easily conceive that he was considerably exhausted by half-past nine o'clock in the evening and that a supper at a friendly parishioner's with a glass or even two glasses of brandy and water after it was a welcome reinforcement mr barton was not at all an ascetic he thought the benefits of fasting were entirely confined to the old testament dispensation he was fond of relaxing himself with a little gossip indeed miss bond and other ladies of enthusiastic views sometimes regretted that mr barton did not more uninterruptedly exhibit a superiority to the things of the flesh thin ladies who take little exercise and whose livers are not strong enough to bear stimulants are so extremely critical about one's personal habits and after all the reverend amos never came near the borders of a vice his very faults were middling he was not very ungrammatical it was not in his nature to be superlative in anything unless indeed he was superlatively middling the quintessential extract of mediocrity if there was any one point on which he showed an inclination to be excessive it was confidence in his own shrewdness and ability in practical matters so that he was very full of plans which were something like his moves in chess admirably well calculated supposing the state of the case were otherwise for example that notable plan of introducing anti-dissenting books into his lending library did not in the least appear to have bruised the head of dissent though it had certainly made dissent strongly inclined to bite the reverend amos's heel again he vexed the souls of his churchwardens and influential parishioners by his fertile suggestiveness as to what it would be well for them to do in the matter of the church repairs and other ecclesiastical secularities i never saw the like to parsons mr hackett said one day in conversation with his brother churchwarden mr bond they are always for meddling with business and they know no more about it than my black filly ah said mr bond they're too high learnt to have much common sense well remarked mr hackett in a modest and dubious tone as if throwing out a hypothesis which might be considered bold i should say that's a bad sort of education as makes folks unreasonable so that you perceive mr barton's popularity was in that precarious condition in that toppling and contingent state in which a very slight push from a malignant destiny would utterly upset it that push was not long in being given as you shall hear one fine may morning when amos was out on his parochial visits and the sunlight was streaming through the bow-window of the sitting-room where milly was seated at her sewing occasionally looking up to glance at the children playing in the garden there came a loud rap at the door which she at once recognized as the countess's and that well-dressed lady presently entered the sitting-room with her veil drawn over her face milly was not at all surprised or sorry to see her 
but when the countess threw up her veil and showed that her eyes were red and swollen she was both surprised and sorry what can be the matter dear caroline caroline threw down jet who gave a little yelp then she threw her arms round milly's neck and began to sob then she threw herself on the sofa and begged for a glass of water then she threw off her bonnet and shawl and by the time milly's imagination had exhausted itself in conjuring up calamities she said dear how shall i tell you i am the most wretched woman to be deceived by a brother to whom i have been so devoted to see him degrading himself giving himself utterly to the dogs what can it be said milly who began to picture to herself the sober mr bridmain taking to brandy and betting he is going to be married to marry my own maid that deceitful alice to whom i have been the most indulgent mistress did you ever hear of anything so disgraceful so mortifying so disreputable and has he only just told you of it said milly who having really heard of worse conduct even in her innocent life avoided a direct answer told me of it he had not even the grace to do that i went into the dining-room suddenly and found him kissing her disgusting at his time of life is it not and when i reproved her for allowing such liberties she turned round saucily and said she was engaged to be married to my brother and she saw no shame in allowing him to kiss her edmund is a miserable coward you know and looked frightened but when she asked him to say whether it was not so he tried to summon up courage and say yes i left the room in disgust and this morning i have been questioning edmund and find that he is bent on marrying this woman and that he has been putting off telling me because he was ashamed of himself i suppose i couldn't possibly stay in the house after this with my own maid turned mistress and now milly i am come to throw myself on your charity for a week or two will you take me in that we will said milly if you will only put up with our poor rooms and way of living it will be delightful to have you it will soothe me to be with you and mr barton a little while i feel quite unable to go among my other friends just at present what those two wretched people will do i don't know leave the neighbourhood at once i hope i entreated my brother to do so before he disgraced himself when amos came home he joined his cordial welcome and sympathy to milly's by and by the countess's formidable boxes which she had carefully packed before her indignation drove her away from camp villa arrived at the vicarage and were deposited in the spare bedroom and in two closets not spare which milly emptied for their reception a week afterwards the excellent apartments at camp villa comprising dining and drawing-rooms three bedrooms and a dressing-room were again to let and mr bridmain's sudden departure together with the countess czerlaski's installation as a visitor at shepperton vicarage became a topic of general conversation in the neighbourhood the keen-sighted virtue of milby and shepperton saw in all this a confirmation of its worst suspicions and pitied the reverend amos barton's gullibility but when week after week and month after month slipped by without witnessing the countess's departure when summer and harvest had fled and still left her behind them occupying the spare bedroom and the closets 
and also a large portion of Mrs. Barton's time and attention, new surmises of a very evil kind were added to the old rumors, and began to take the form of settled convictions in the minds even of Mr. Barton's most friendly parishioners. And now, here is an opportunity for an accomplished writer to apostrophize calumny, to quote Virgil, and to show that he is acquainted with the most ingenious things which have been said on that subject in polite literature. But what is opportunity to the man who can't use it? An undefecundated egg which the waves of time wash away into non-entity. So, as my memory is ill-furnished and my notebook still worse, I am unable to show myself either erudite or eloquent apropos of the calumny whereof the Reverend Amos Barton was the victim. I can only ask my reader, did you ever upset your ink-bottle, and watch in helpless agony the rapid spread of Stygian blackness over your fair manuscript or fairer table-cover? With a like inky swiftness did gossip now blacken the reputation of the Reverend Amos Barton, causing the unfriendly to scorn, and even the friendly to stand aloof, at a time when difficulties of another kind were fast thickening around him. End of chapter 5 of The Sad Fortunes of the Reverend Amos Barton